So we have sin entering into the world. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Eve, the dialogue between the serpent and Eve. Why? There's several answers that people have given to the question, why was Eve questioned by the serpent? And you maybe have one you can add to the list. So various answers that people have proposed include everything from, well, because women are the weaker sex, women are the more challenging sex, women are more interested in fanciful speculation, or the woman only heard the prohibition secondhand. So there's lots of different reasons given. Ultimately, we're not told why the woman was deceived first, but the New Testament makes use of this fact in Paul's discussion of gender roles. So go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. So both Adam and Eve are obviously fallen, and the, the primary responsibility for their fallenness is sort of dumped on Adam, because Jesus, Adam is the representative of the human race. Jesus is called the second Adam, not the second Eve, even though... One could argue, well, didn't, didn't Eve sin first? Well, you could argue that because she's having the conversation, but Adam's passivity was an equal sin. And Adam was the head of Eve because in the text it says she was made for him as a helper. It's, just, it's not even debatable. So for whatever the reason why the dialogue starts with her, the Apostle Paul says in uh, 1 Timothy 2, 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So the way I understand that is, it's not, I do not permit a woman to teach, comma, second thing, it's all wrapped into one. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So it's not, a, it's not that women can't teach, it's that Paul says women can't teach or have authority over a man. And this is in the context of the church. Uh, rather, she is to remain quiet. And then it's like, well, why would he say that? So if that's all you had, then you could say, well, it was cultural, it was something in the first century, it was something, something about the ancient or eastern world, it was something about the Greco-Roman world, it was some hang-up that Paul had, maybe it was different education, or, you know, there's all kinds of reasons people have come up with. But if you just read on, it tells you the reason why. You don't have to hypothesize. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So the, the biblical reason in the New Testament why Paul forbids women from teaching or having authority over a man is not, in fact, tied at all to culture. It's tied to creation order and further tied to, to the, the fall of man and the temptation of Eve in chapter 3. And so, um, you know, one of the things we say in our church is, you know, creatures don't apologize to creatures what the creator has said. But because of our culture, sometimes I feel like I should like skirt around that one because it's, it's a little, eh, it's like culturally not apropos. However, the reason why churches should maintain this notion that women should not be permitted to teach or have authority over men in the church is because Paul teaches it as part of creation order and also ties it into the fall. 
So I just don't think you can ever say that's cultural or that just went away or that was just Paul's notion. So you have to accept it. You have to understand it because a lot of people in a fallen world will read that as um, authoritarianism or male chauvinism. It's like, it's not that at all. It's just that God is maintaining a distinction of roles between men and women. Not a distinction of giftedness because gifted female teachers have like 101 opportunities to teach in good churches, but they just can't use those gifts in the context of uh, teaching men the word of God, presumably limited to the word of God. I wouldn't personally feel comfortable saying this would also apply to like teaching accounting or biology or English or something like that. I think it relates to spiritual teaching because Paul's talking about that in the context of the church. So do you have any questions about that, by the way? Because that may stimulate some dialogue. I'm welcome to help you wade through that if you'd like. Do you have any questions about that? Yeah, Kelly. Um, I'm just in my notes and I lost what you were saying. Were you saying it's part of the creation order and then there was something else? Yeah, so I'm looking at two lines here. So his argument is for Adam was formed first. So that's like a creation order thing, okay. right? And then he adds that Adam was not deceived, but woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So whether or not we can fully understand why Eve was confronted by the serpent and the serpent didn't confront Adam, we can go, go back and forth and have several thoughts as to why that is true or why that happened. But even if we don't arrive at like an iron-clad, super concrete answer, we can still look at Paul and say, well, for, what, for what, whatever reason it was, Paul ties that into the prohibition against women teaching and having authority over men. So we may not fully understand the reason, but we do fully understand the application. Yeah. Okay. A um, couple more questions. How could Eve talk to a snake? Wouldn't that have been your cue number one, like something's weird here, talking to a snake? Well, some say that this is mythological and reflective of ancient fables. Anybody feel comfortable with that? Probably not. Some say that animals may very well have communicated with humans prior to the fall. Uh, animals are, after all, both recipients of blessing through the covenant, Genesis 9-5, and the curse, Genesis 3. So it's possible that animals had some sort of a different relationship with humans before sin, and that also led to the breach of the ability to communicate. It's possible. You can just like go think about that a lot and write a um, <laughs> dissertation on it or something. Okay, there's... There's biblical theology, there's systematic theology, and then there's speculative theology. And a lot of people like the speculative stuff. It's fascinating, but I guess it's okay to speculate a little bit, just don't start a new denomination based on it. If you read through Genesis 3, there are several results from sin. So the results of sin are both punishment and they're descriptives of what life is going to be like without total surrender to God. So when the goodness of God is set aside... What is left over? Well, in Eastern thought, 
if I understand it. There's something like this. Right? Draw this in dark. It's all there. What's this called? Maybe I drew it backwards, I have no idea. But what what's the basic notion there of good and evil? The yin yang thing. What is it? Okay, there's a balance between good and evil. The white represents good, the black represents evil. But in every good, there's a little bit of evil, and in every evil, there's a little bit of good, and they sort of coexist as like the two, two ends of a stretched out elastic band. Is that a biblical notion or not? Not a biblical notion. So, um, the biblical notion is that originally... There is only good. And that good is wrapped up in the character and essence of the divine other who reveals himself to us as Yahweh God. God is good. God exists, this is mind-boggling, forever. There's, no, there's not even a symbol we can use to really communicate Forever. Even if I do a circle, you know, or a, a straight line, I should say, just going back, it's still linear. It still implies time. But God just, it's, we're not really able to fully comprehend that. But somehow God existed forever, eternally, and he was always good. And if anyone ever says to you in answer to the question, why did God create people? You ever heard anybody say because he was lonely? No. There's a word for that. It's called a heresy. God wasn't lonely. Loneliness implies a deficit. Loneliness implies he somehow needs to feed off of you to feel good about himself or to be relationally satisfied. God was perfectly content being God forever before we ever showed up. So God is good. And therefore, the Christian notion is not, you don't need evil to describe and define good. Good is the de facto default essence of things prior to God creating the world. So evil then is not the bosom buddy of goodness. Evil is actually non-creative and in a certain sense non-substantive. It's just the corruption of good. It's disobedience to the good. It's not really the opposite. It's not the evil twin of. It's just disobeying the good, not living up to the implications of the good. Then you have evil or bad. Okay, it's down here. Now, why am I stressing this? Because don't ever think of the devil as like the polar opposite of God. God is God. The devil is a created being who has rebelled against him and isn't even in the same category as God. Don't ever think that you have to experience bad or sin in order to understand good. Sometimes this even leaks through in people's testimonies. You know the testimonies we like the most? People that were really bad. Because that proves the power of good. No. You can be like 
really good and have an awesome testimony, and that just proves the power of good and righteousness. You don't have to have done a lot of crappy things to prove that goodness is awesome. Goodness is awesome regardless of sin. But in the creation order, what we do see is when this is set aside, a lot of bad things happen. And here are some of them. A desire for self-law. What's the word for self-law? Starts with an A. Close. Autonomy. That comes from two Greek words. Basically meaning (coughs) self and law. Self-law. So, a desire for self-law, what did that lead to? Insecurity and shame. So remember, prior to sin, they were naked and unashamed. As soon as they sin, what's the first reaction? Got to go get covered up, got to hide from God, we're shamed, right? So self-law does not lead to security, as we like to convince ourselves. I'm going to be my own man. I'm going to march my own path. I'm going to grab life by the horns. I'm going to do whatever I want. And then we tell our kids, you can do whatever you want, little Johnny. Do whatever you want. Dream big, little Johnny. Go take life by the tail, little Johnny. You can do it. That's garbage. Little Johnny can't do anything. Because little little Johnny is going to be limited by his intellect, by his opportunities, by his finances, by sinful constructs in this world, by the government, on and on and on and on. You can't do whatever you want in life. Is that not true? Or you guys would be probably all doing something different than you are. You could really do anything you wanted in life. A desire to usurp authority leads to the realization of vulnerability, nakedness, and a desire to protect oneself, hiding. Excuses for sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, what'd they do? She did it. He did it. He made me do it. Blaming. Is that not like something that comes up in almost every marital counseling session? Those of you that counsel, those of you that mentor, those of you that help people. Is there not a lot of blaming connect with a whole bunch of reasons? Why spouses are often at odds. The curse of enmity, the curse of pain, a woman's desire to usurp her husband, uh, the curse of a man's desire to lord it over his wife. Oh, I've got to show you this because super, super important. Look at verse, chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, this is speaking of the curse, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and, it shall, and he shall rule over you. Now, that word for sounds positive, but it's actually not a positive word. A parallel passage is chapter 4, verse, um, I think it's 7 here. Let's see. Yep. This is warning Cain, God's. It's the same grammatical construction in Hebrew. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. When it says its desire is for you, what does it mean there? Is it like, oh, sin's out to help you out? No, the, the, the word for means out to get in both of those contexts. It's identical grammatical construction. And in both, it's like you got to rule it. So in Genesis 4, 7, Rule means crush it. That's the same 
word in 3.16. So when you look at 3.16, with greater clarity now, the curse that God places upon the woman as a result of sin, this is not God's original ideal, is when you do bear children, as a result of the creation order to multiply, it's going to be painful. The second part is your desire is going to be to be out for your husband, meaning you will not, there's no woman in this room that naturally would ever want to submit to a man. It's not natural. Any of you that are submissive to your man, if you have one, that's a supernatural endowment from God. Because why, why would Susie, like she's three times as nice as me, why would she want to submit to me? That makes like no sense from a human perspective. Zero. And then the husband is he shall rule, meaning crush. Neither of those is good. So you see how the harmony that God put in place for men and women, both sides are marred. The husband becomes an overruling, crushing jerk, and she becomes autonomously self-protective and unwilling to submit. So that's the consequence. So naturally, I'm not going to be, in my natural man, a good spiritual leader over my wife, and she's not naturally going to want to submit to me. So then you go to Ephesians 5 and 6, and God is teaching, how is that possible? Well, we have Jesus. So the husband is called to love his wife. How do, what does that look like? Check out Jesus, as Christ loved the church. And the woman's called to submit to her husband. What does that look like? Check out the church, just as the church submits to Jesus. So the gospel then becomes the redeeming truth or narrative that affects and infects how Christian couples relate to each other. And that helps us to overcome Genesis 3.16. So you could say John 3.16 overcomes Genesis 3.16. It's a summary of the gospel, right? And, and again, when I discovered that probably 25 years ago, this before I even met my wife, I just like blew my socks off. That makes like so much sense and explains so much of enmity between men and women and the consequences of all of that. Okay, one final thing. This is a little speculation, okay? But I just think it's kind of cool, so I'm going to throw it out. Some people have asked the question, how long were Adam and Eve in the garden before they fell? You ever thought about that? So they're in the garden. They're naked and ashamed. How much time went by before they fell? One thing we can say with con a considerable amount of certainty is that Adam's lifespan is calculated from the, the creation event and not from his expulsion from the garden. And it's like into the 900s. So he couldn't have been there for eons. Seth was born after Abel's death when Adam was 130, according to Genesis 5.3. So while we don't know how long after the expulsion from the garden Cain and Abel were born, we know that Seth, who, who wasn't necessarily, there could have been other, could have been 20 daughters born in between there. We just don't know. It had to be before he was 130. And uh, since it's doubtful, fertility would have been a problem for the first couple. 
they must have been kicked out of the garden before they ever had sexual intercourse. Otherwise, if Eve had been impregnated prior to sin, then one could hypothetically say that first child will be born sinless unless they became a sinner sometime you know, in the third or fourth month of pregnancy, if that's, let's just say, when Adam and Eve sinned. So it's likely that Adam and Eve were kicked out like day one. And one pseudepigraphal work from rabbinic thought states that Adam and Eve were created at 3 p.m. on the Friday of creation. They fell into sin, which was in the sixth day. They fell into sin at 6 p.m. and they were expelled at 9. So that's rabbinic tradition. Now, interestingly, the second Adam was crucified during this exact time period, millennia later. I don't know if that's accurate or not. I just think it's kind of interesting. It makes sense to me that they probably weren't in the garden for much longer than a few hours. Right. So let's, let's talk about the law. And um, by the way, like I've said before, if any of you need to like scoot out, use the bathroom, whatever, I don't, I don't mind interrupting the class, you, you're welcome to do that. I want to talk about the law. So what are the reason and functions of a law? What are some of the crazy laws you read about in the Bible? Old, old covenant laws. Just ones that sort of stand out as, oh, it's a little odd. And maybe even your atheist friends teased you about them. Do you remember any? That's the classic one, right? Don't cook a kid and in his mother's uh, milk. Yeah. Composition of a shirt that's made of hair. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how do? Okay. Right. Well, don't tell us the reason why. I'm just asking you for the crazy rules. Yeah. Anything else? That a man could really be with his wife for like one week at a month. Right, yeah. Okay, yeah. All the uncleanness laws, yeah. A lot of stuff. What do you do with a bowl if a lizard falls into it? Um, you know, what if a girl's accused of witchcraft? She mixes some dirt in a drink and drinks it, see if her abdomen swells. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff there that's, that's a little unusual from the perspective of the modern reader. And admittedly, some of it we probably will never fully understand because there's probably some cultural things that have been lost to us that would have been more, would have made more sense to the ancient reader. Nevertheless, we have in our Bible the laws of the Old Covenant. And most, most of our time is going to be spent in Leviticus, but I actually want to start us off in Deuteronomy. So go to Deuteronomy chapter 12, fifth book in. And look at verse 1. They're called statutes and rules. So Deuteronomy 12 through Deuteronomy 26. 12.1 says, These are the statutes and rules you should be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. And then if you go to chapter 26, this is like kind of the, the parentheses at the beginning. Now this is the parentheses at the end. Chapter 26, verse 16. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. 
you shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. So there is a little extra thing there. I want you to want to do them. So we have all kinds of laws in there. We have stuff about idolatry, clean and unclean food, tithing laws, sabbatical laws, the Passover, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Booths, a bunch of stuff about the feasts, on and on and on. Cities of refuge, you know, where do you run if you accidentally kill somebody? Rules about warfare, marrying female captives. I mean, that's kind of odd. You know, it almost seems to be promoting slavery. Then we have a whole bunch more laws in back in Leviticus. This is where, like, every Christian on the face of the planet who loves God's word still gets bogged down. Because it does come across as kind of dry. Like, most people don't, apart from the Bible, it's like, I want to I do some reading. I'm probably not going to go to the library and sign out, a, like, a, some legal text. I'm just going to read about civil litigation or something like that. It's just not the kind of reading we naturally gravitate toward unless you're a lawyer and you're reading it because you're doing a course on it or you have to prepare for a, a case. And so not only are they peculiar, but some of them are just a little challenging to read and begs the question, why do I need to know this stuff? How is this applicable for my life? So before you jump right into how it's applicable and how we answer skeptics, you need to kind of have a bit of a a lesson on the rules, why we're given these rules and regulations in the first place. One of the things we can conclude from Deuteronomy especially is that they were intended to shape the life of the community when they entered into the new promised land. Very simply. God wanted to provide shape and boundaries to the community in terms of conduct and, conduct and expectations when they entered the land. They're to be done carefully from the heart. So they're not, they're, they were never intended to be just rules written on stone. Do you remember that kind of notion that comes up a lot in the Old Testament where the prophets chastise the people of God because it's like, it's all just written on stone. It's written on stone and I want to give you hearts of flesh. And so then we get to Joel chapter 2 and God finally predicts, I'm going to give you hearts of flesh. And I'm going to write the law in your hearts. Now it's fulfilled in Pentecost. But the intention from the beginning is not just like wrote, obedience. It was supposed to be from the heart. They're also tied to consequences. So good consequences are life and blessing. Bad consequences are death and cursing. So those terminolo that terminology comes up over and over and over again. Life and death, life and death, blessings and cursings, blessings and cursings, over and over and over again. It's a theme that's woven through the Old Testament. And the reason why you have to understand at least in some general way, the law given in the Torah is because everything else Israel does through the period of the judges, through the monarchy, through periods of exile, through periods of return or restoration, through the chastisement or encouragement of the prophets, everything else that we're told about Israel is based upon God's evaluation of whether they are doing these things or not. In fact, you can't even understand the Gospels without understanding the law. Because Jesus chastises the Pharisees for either over-interpreting the law, or not understanding the heart of the law, or foisting the law on others and not obeying it themselves. On and on and on and on. 
So you, you really can't even understand Jesus very much. And you certainly won't understand Paul if you don't understand something about the purpose of the law and the nature of the law in the Old Covenant. So let's do a bit of a background study on the law. And I'm going to limit this primarily to Leviticus, because that's where most of the laws are found. So Leviticus is a post-biblical name. So it was, it's not like the original name of the book. I told you before, the Hebrews would just refer to the first five books by like the first word that appears in the book. But Leviticus is a later word that means instruction by the priests. The Levites were the priests. So Leviticus is instruction by the Levites. It's revelatory in nature. There's 27 chapters in Leviticus. And 20 of them, that's a lot, 20 out of 27, begin with the words, Yahweh said to Moses, Yahweh said to Moses, Yahweh said to Moses. Or in English, the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses. So it's like, okay, clearly this is an instruction manual. Clearly it is. That's how it's framed up. There's a huge emphasis on holiness. This is like... Eureka moment, why all these laws? Like, could you just boil it down here into one word? Yeah, I can. Holiness. Where'd you get that one from? Got it from Leviticus. So in like the English Bible, in the English, like let's say the KJV, the KJV translation of Leviticus, the word holiness appears 99 times, translating Hebrew words for holiness. 99 times. In 27 chapters. 50 of those occurrences appear in chapters 19 to 27 alone. Holiness, 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 holiness. The root word for holiness appears 150 times in the book of Leviticus. The root form. Like that three consonantal root. 150 times. And a book that's really not that long. It's about the length of like John's gospel, roughly. So... When you look at all these laws, you, you can't help to conclude that they're tied very much to God's desire to be holy and to create a holy people. And that's like super helpful for reading it. It's concerned with the service of worship at the tabernacle. So it's very much concerned with corporate, corporate holiness. So holiness is expressed individually, of course. But holiness is also expressed collectively and we should be concerned with both so we, we should all be very concerned with our own spiritual personal holiness and we should be concerned with the holiness of God's people collectively and that's why we have things like church discipline and accountability and calling each other out community standards and all that in our churches what are some of the laws so here's some categories just to help you out directives for worship so here's some laws on how to worship how do I worship I'm going to tell you how to worship God's got some laws in there. This is how you worship. I just worship however I want. And all you worship the way God tells you to worship. Ceremonial cleanliness or cleanness. Ceremonial cleanness. So when you're, when you're preparing to engage in something that is especially expressive of your faith, there's some pomp and circumstance that is associated with that because God is concerned with the drama, the visual, the outward expression of whatever the people are doing. And uh, that's important. Moral law. 
So not all of the law is moral, but there's good chunks of it that are moral law. So you, you just help us with this a little bit. When I say a ceremonial law, maybe verses is too strong of a word, but in contrast to a moral law, ceremonial law, moral law, what would be an example of that or how would we differentiate between the two? From anywhere in the Bible. What's a ceremonial law versus a moral law? Or a rule or a statute or regulation? Okay. Yep. What would be a what would be another one? What would be one one in the church? What would be like a ceremonial law? Statute, rule, regulation in the church. Something that we should do that's ceremonial in nature. Usually positive. Baptism, Lord's Supper. Okay, do this in remembrance of me. What would be a moral law? Right? So what's an example of that? Don't kill people. Mm-hmm. Don't steal, right? So the ceremonial law is generally tied to an occasion, something God wants you to remember or reenact, often a dramatic reenactment of something. It sometimes is temporal, sometimes lasts for a whole like dispensation in Scripture. But a moral law is something that is innately tied to the character <coughs> of God. So God is life-giving. So obviously murdering people is not life-giving. Uh, God is generous in giving, so stealing is the opposite of that. So those are more like moral na- nature. You can still get in trouble for violating both. But if you look at the scriptures, moral laws are usually tied to greater punishment. You do that, you're dead. There's a stoning going on. But other ones are more, oh, you've got to pay a fee, you've got to bring a sacrifice, you've got to do something because you broke some ceremonial commandment. So there's a little bit of a difference between the two, and you'll see those, and they become clearer as you understand God, and you just read them out. Uh, here's some more. So we got directives for worship, ceremonial cleanness, moral law, laws about holy days. God is um, interested in people not forgetting. And so he enacts holy days or holy functions on certain days or periods of time that help us to recall or to remember or commemorate. And that's like really helpful because we're creatures of habit. And so the people of God had like these, this, this calendar, it was a religious calendar really, where this is what you do in this season, this season, this season, for how long, and this is kind of what it's all going to look like. And it just helps everybody to kind of be pulling in the same direction. So this is from where we get our English word holy, holidays. Holidays is commemoration of a holy day. And we've made like everything up holiday like family day is not really a holiday the essence of uh easter is that's a holy day good friday is these are actually holy days Um, the civil the long weekend in august isn't even though we call it a holiday (laughs) it's not a holy day and then a sabbath so sabbath laws so what you do on your saturday you set the seventh day of the week and uh, laws for like the year of Jubilee, which is like every 50 years kind of thing. Back in 1977, Norman Geisler, who was a very well-respected Christian apologist, he mostly does 
work like defending the Christian faith, but he he came up with this outline, and I wrote it down a long time ago, and I think it's like really good. There's just like an, a quick outline of Leviticus. So he, he divides it into uh, two parts. The way to the Holy One. The way to the Holy One, meaning God, which is chapters 1 to 10. So that's uh, A. A. And then the way to holiness. <clears throat> is the subject of um, 11 to 27. So I, I really liked that. I thought that was really helpful just to kind of break the book up. The way to the holy one. Right. And the way to holiness. So the, he then divides these into two categories, one and two, by sacrifice. One to seven, and by pre, by the priesthood. Eight to ten, and then. Down here, divides this into two by sanitation. So that's all the, the, the cleanliness laws. This is 11 to 16. And by sanctification. Seventeen to twenty-seven. I like the fact that it's very focused on the overall theme. Root word appearing one hundred and fifty times. Holiness. Okay, very much tied to that. So, looking at the book, we have laws at the beginning for that regulate five major types of sacrifice. So right here, just using his outline, this is not his stuff now, but using his outline as our guide, there's five, five different times, there's five different types of major types of sacrifice, and the laws that are given all kind of help to fulfill one of those kinds of sacrifice. So chapters 1 to 3, just doing an overview now, chapters 1 to 3 are burnt offerings. This is going to sound really weird to you, probably because we this word has been uh, used to describe the Nazi burning of the Jews in World War II, the Holocaust. But that word was actually a theological word in Christian theology before it was co-opted by those that were describing the atrocities of Hitler in World War II. So in older theology books, it's not so common today because the word has almost been corrupted. 
But the burnt offering was typically called the Holocaust offering. And it referred to the burning of meat and thank offerings to the Lord by the burning of meat on an altar. And obviously that with the burning of flesh, that word was co-opted to describe the atrocities, like I mentioned, of Hitler. So the burnt offering, in, even in like um, some, uh, again, some older theology books, it will be called the Holocaust offering. So that's chapters 1 to 3. And then chapters 4 to 5 are called sin, guilt, trespass offerings. So that's... Uh, takes up most of that first section there. Priestly duties and rights concerning the offering of sacrifices are found in verses 6 to 7. So like what are the responsibilities of the priest, the how-tos, can they uh, benefit from the sacrifices in terms of their livelihood and all that. That's kind of in the first part of the, of the book. Sacrificial laws and the consecration of Aaron and his son. So who's Aaron? Not this Aaron. But who's Aaron? Okay, he's Moses' brother. And he was given the responsibility to oversee, like, the priesthood, right? So him and his sons, and ultimately his descendants, verse chapters 8 to 10, there's all the sacrificial laws. So Aaron's first offering for himself and his people is defined in chapter 8. And then we have right away, look at verses, or chapters 9 and 10 of Leviticus. This is not uncommon in the scriptures for God to teach something and then give a bad example. So we can learn from the pluses and minuses, right? We teach people this all the time. You come from a bad family or some family of origin with problems, great, learn from the bad. You come from an awesome family, great, learn from the good. You can learn from bad examples and you can learn from good examples with the help of the Lord. In verses, um, or in chapters 9 and 10, there's unauthorized fire brought to the tabernacle by Nadab and Abihu. And this leads to their death. Look at the beginning of chapter 10 there. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. These are his sons. These are his boys. This is, like, this is his Josiah and Levi and Simon. It's my boys. They each took his censer and put a fire in it and laid the incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So what does God do? Oh, a little slap on the wrist. That's a fine. Oh, you're excommunicated. No, it doesn't do that. What does God do? Kills them. Well, that's kind of extreme. But the life and death passages of the Old Testament where God is giving life or he's taking life are tied to what? The holiness of God. And the reason why that sounds so extreme and weird to the modern listener is because we have a very reduced view of God's holiness, even in our churches. Like we can preach it and we can read it, but our view of holiness is, has been so reduced. And... Um, we tend to think of God more as our buddy, as our friend, as our lover, as our savior. I mean, you, you listen to Christian music, old and new. You listen to um, the way people talk about their relationship with God, their prayer life with God. 
And God has described using a variety of language in the scriptures, but we tend to gravitate toward the soft side of God. If I could, I don't even like to say side because it, 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 it sounds kind of strange. God is an integrated being and everything coexists together. But you catch my drift. We tend not to think as much about God's wrath. So like this Sunday, I'm starting to prepare my sermon, preaching from Revelation 6, and it's very much about the wrath of God. How do, you, how do you frame that up for the modern listener? Because we don't like to hear sermons about God's wrath. But it's in the Bible, and it's in the Bible a lot. And it's in the Bible in both Testaments. And um, we, we celebrate the death of Jesus, but we need to understand that he was dying because we should rightly have died. That's the wrath of God, being appeased through Christ. So even there, we emphasize the fact that it was appeased, but let's emphasize for a moment the fact that it was being appeased because God was wrathful. And when we lose sight of the holiness of God, we do dumb things. And these guys, so quickly out of the gates, having received these laws from the Lord, just were kind of trivial about it. And their lives, having been taken from them, stand as uh, a reminder perpetual reminder of the need to be careful in how we approach God. The passage comes to mind. Um, just flip over real quick to Ecclesiastes. Uh, chapter 5. Just this first few verses here. Just speaking of the house of the Lord. Now, don't, don't view this as like the church building. Like, make sure you make a distinction between the house of the Lord and the old covenant, house of the Lord and the new, new covenant and all that. But just putting all that aside. Just this concept here. Guard your steps when you go to the house of the Lord. Draw near To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. How could you be doing evil when you're offering a sacrifice to the Lord? Because you're coming forward thoughtlessly. So you can actually do the right thing, but if it's thoughtless, God's like, that's evil. That's the sacrifice of a fool. So he goes on to say, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before the Lord. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. We're like, well, I thought he was everywhere. He is, but here... The writer is emphasizing the distinctiveness of God in relationship to creation. And therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. And then it goes on like about vows. Like don't utter vows to the Lord and, and, and not repay them. So think about this church. When you're worshiping the Lord, even like collectively, and you're looking at a screen, let's say, and there's words on that screen, there's Christian songs, and you're singing those songs. You're singing vows. You're making declarations about God. Make sure it's never just words being mouthed. Make sure you're entering into what you're saying. And better to not say anything than to be wrapped up, let's say, in the emotion of worship, but be thoughtless in what you're actually saying or declaring to the Lord. Years ago, I remember seeing this list of uh, 
I think it was called like Honest Hymn Singing, and it had like some old hymns, and then it had another list of what people really mean. And on one side, it would have like the hymn, I Surrender All, but what people really mean is I Surrender Some. And it just kind of went down this list, and it was pretty humorous. When you think about all the things we sing in worship, but what we actually mean is not necessarily that. And we have to be careful about that. And one of the good things about studying like the intricacies and details of the law and feeling like, oh, these are overwhelming. Oh, how many more are there? Is accentuating the holiness of God. Don't mess with God. Don't be trivial with God. Like, don't reduce God down to five little steps. He's God. And while he, he's gracious, because all of us deserve what Nadab and Abihu got. He is God. And so we're, we're working at making sure that we're guarding his holiness. And we guard his holiness by committing ourselves to holiness. And we guard his holiness by admitting we're not holy when we're not holy. So keeping short accounts with the Lord. These are ways to guard God's holiness. Chapters 11 through 15 are laws concerning purity and impurity. So in chapter 11, there's clean laws about animals and unclean animals. Why does God say, okay, these animals are clean and these animals aren't? So the pig, it's got like the cloven hooves going on, don't eat it. The rock badger, don't eat that. He's giving like these identifying features you shall not eat any of their flesh. So if you're in the water and it has fins and scales, you can eat it. But don't eat like swarming creatures. That would be like shrimp. Or uh, don't eat other sorts of things. So oh, oh. then there's birds. Birds you can eat, birds you can't eat. So you can't eat vultures. You can't eat meat-eating birds. But you can kind of eat like, vegetarian birds. What is all this about? Very simply, we would call these... Uh, laws that exist to protect the stupidity of people. Now, we have the advantage of understanding a little bit about human immunity, microbiology, pathogens, bacteria, viruses, on and on and on and on. So every one of you in this room knows that the way you cook pork is different than the way you cook beef. The way you cook chicken is different than the way you cook beef. You have to be more careful with some kinds of meat and other kinds of meat. You can almost eat them raw. And why is that? Because we know that certain things have more bacteria, more parasites. Certain things have less. We understand that you, know, you don't eat just raw sea creatures that like lobsters and stuff that are crawling around the bottom, but you could probably pull a nice salmon out of the ocean and remove the scales and bite right into the thing and you'd be fine. I don't know why you do that, but you could. I guess you'd be like sushi, right? So people that have sushi bars know this. You have to be careful about the temperature and what temp you know, how, how much it has to be cooled and all this kind of stuff. Fast you know, go, rewind thousands of years. You got a bunch of people living in the desert. What do they know about all this stuff? So I think these are some like early medical laws of sorts that God puts into place. And 
centuries later, he changes that because Peter gets the vision and the animals come down on the sheet. He's, they're allowed to eat anything. It's like wide open. But prior to this, under the Old Covenant, in a desert environment, God declares certain things to be clean and unclean. And based upon our knowledge now of preparation of foods, it's like, yeah, this totally makes sense. Animals that are more vegetarian-like, animals that don't feed off the bottom of scuzzy rivers are better for you health-wise. You're less likely to get diseases and parasites and all that kind of stuff. But if you eat this other stuff, you're just more likely. So God bans it. He nixes it. So here we see, I believe, God speaking of it as clean and unclean. Really, it's not that there's something like ontologically dirty about it, but God knows something about these creatures that will harm his people. And so he puts these protective laws into place to relate to what they can eat, what they can't eat, how, and so forth. I mean, same, I have a bowl in my office that's uh, probably about 3,500 years old. And it's, it was, it's, it's broken, but it's been glued back together. But it's, it's from uh, Jericho. And um, it's really not worth that much. So you can get a lot of those things in Israel. I bought it for like 150 bucks or something. But it's from Jericho before <coughs> the Jews conquered it. So it's old. Jericho was conquered many times, the oldest city on earth. And if you look at that bowl, and then you go to the cupboard, even the church cupboard, and you pull out a cereal bowl, they really haven't changed the design much. They're basically the same shape, made the same way on a wheel, the same. What is different is that modern bowls have glazing on them. These old bowls don't. They're just clay. So even the law... You know, if a lizard falls into your bowl, break it. Why would you do that? Well, it's 100 degrees out. You know, Lenny the lizard's running through your tent. He has a heart attack. He drops into your bowl. His bodily juices get into the clay. You remove Lenny the lizard, and you put your cereal in there, you know, and you die of whatever the next morning, right? So people can't see that stuff. They don't know that stuff. So God puts these protective laws in place. If a lizard falls into the pot, you break it. If it falls into the water, you dump the water out, break the pot. These are all credible things that God is putting in place to protect his people before they know better. Now, this is where my mind automatically goes. I wonder how many times God, even in this modern age, has given us laws and we're still trying to figure out, why did you tell us that? I still don't get it. We can default to the fact that God knows more than we do. And even if we don't understand the reason why God says don't do this or do this, it's probably a pretty good idea just to obey him. Chances are, okay, understatement of the night, he knows a little more than us. Agreed? I remember growing up thinking, like, why did God tell us we can't do that? Why did God tell us we can't do this? And now, in my maturity... Some of that has been cl cleared up, but there's still times that I'm like, I don't really fully understand why God thinks that's so necessary or unnecessary, but I'm going to trust him because he's a good God and he knows something more than I do. Then we have laws to do with cleanliness. Go to chapter 12. We have laws about um, cleanliness after childbirth. Um, the laws sound like if you're a feminist... And, you, and you're like out to get God, 
then these laws are going to seem kind of demeaning to women. But in actual fact, uh, God's laws about women uh, not having sexual intercourse during menstruation, being put outside and away from other people after childbirth, all these kinds of things, if you kind of study them out, we don't have time to get into them in detail. They exist for the protection of, of the woman, to give her time for her body to heal up. And in a dusty environment where there weren't showers available and there weren't uh, antiseptics available, you just had to put some hard and fast rules in place to protect people from the possibility of dying prematurely or unnecessarily because of uh, <coughs> womanly related uh, issues. And so when you read these out, on, at first read, they can kind of seem a little strange, but they're actually there to accentuate either ritual cleanliness or physical cleanliness after childbirth. And then in verse, chapters 13 and 14, laws concerning the inspection of God's people and houses for diseases and mildew. You know, there's a huge emphasis in our culture, if your basement floods, you've got to have someone come in and inspect it, right? Because black mold. You, know, you want to be breathing in black mold. And it's true. Why would you want to breathe in black? You get black mold spores in your lungs. Probably not awesome for your health. So we understand that. But we understand why black mold is not awesome. Again, prior to the age of microbiology, thousands of years ago, God put rules into place in chapters 13 and 14, and he said to the priests, if you see this on somebody or on a household item or on their houses, here's what you do with it. You throw it out or you cleanse it or you quarantine the person. And if you're just reading this, it sounds so weird. No, it's not weird at all. It's God protecting his people thousands of years before they knew anything about spores. And the priests function not only as the religious leaders, but the civil leaders of society. So they were like a combination of prophet, priest, pastor, mayor, governor, physician. They're just kind of doing it all. And so these laws, while they're in the Levitical Code, are important to protect people's health. And then we have laws for purification and discharge in... Uh, chapter 15. I know we have at least one physician here tonight and maybe some medical people and it would be kind of cool for you to do a little study on this because I think you would find that if you correlate the laws, the, the purification laws to do with um, bodily discharges, mildew, hygiene, you'd say, man, this is like way before its time. This is stuff that we would still encourage people to practice today as just general hygienic rules. We all know that uh, even in, uh, you think of like the Black Plague and things like that that took place in Europe. I mean, Europeans were just slobs for centuries. They, they had one of the shortest lifespans like, compared to Asians and that kind of thing because they were so dirty. They just didn't practice basic hygiene. And, you know, rats and mice running around their houses and villages, and no one knew anything about that. It was just normal. Um, and millions of people at different points in history, died because of stuff like that, because of a lack of hygiene. 
And you think, how could you not know that? Centuries earlier, God had already revealed some of this stuff to the people of Israel. But, apart from God, people don't even know how to wash themselves. People don't even like get, how can you go centuries and centuries stinking and having rats running around? At some point, someone doesn't make the connection. And maybe this is why we're dying. Maybe this is why we like live half as long as some countries, right? And it's the same today. We, st- we have countries today that have half the lifespan of other countries. And it's because like, people don't wash their hands. Like just basic stuff. And we think we're so smart. So God puts these rules in place because he knows we're not very smart. And so by obeying God's rules and God's laws, people are safeguarded against disease and infections due to poor animals, due to poor uh, exposure to animals that carry diseases. Many of these laws reflect practices that were not really implemented or understood by other global nations until like the 1800s. But God apparently knew about this stuff well in advance. So that's where we're going to end tonight, and that just kind of gives you a bit of a taste test of some of those purification laws, and then we're going to get into some laws pertaining to holiness. Um, And I want to kind of look at the five main offerings that are in Leviticus next week, okay? So have a great night. Thanks for coming, everybody.